0: If if this if this works out then Tony owes me be- a lot of beers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this
0: is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott.
1: All right. Okay, it's Paul Verschur with uh, Tony Prescott for the Conversion Science Network podcast and today we're here with, uh, with John Lisman, who was speaking at, uh, at our summer school and John actually this is a really special year for you because it's exactly 20 years ago that you published your paper with Idiard on tetagama cycle and 20 years later you're as excited about it as you were 20 years ago. So why is this such a big deal?
0: Well ideas are nice and much nicer when you know that they're true uh, and I think that that's uh, that's what motivates me actually some people often will say oh you know it was a that's such a great idea and I think it's so beautiful irrespective of whether it's true and, and I understand that some people feel that way about their work but I don't feel that way I feel that it's only beautiful to me if it's true so if it takes 20 years and it turns out to be true mm-hmm. I'm very happy.
1: Okay but now just just your your happiness is ne- not necessarily uh, convincing uh, others that it's true. <laughs> I guess there's an empirical base for that or not.
0: I I don't uh, know whether I other people are convinced i haven't pulled them Mm -hmm. maybe you guys will tell me what you see as the holes and I, i mean i could talk about some of the holes myself but in terms of representation that is in terms of what you can record it seems to me completely convincing that you know different information is held at different theta phases and that it's not a continuous phase spectrum that that it's a discrete phase spectrum and the discreteness is organized by gamma. So that seems to me experimentally clear. Now what you know somebody could argue is that I don't even believe that this is a code until you show me that you know some downstream network or behavioral system is reading this and that therefore if you put some Altered information in a particular gamma slot that the animal will behave differently. That would be, you know, a reasonable next step. And so maybe one would really have to show that before one could claim victory. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I wouldn't go that far.
2: Perhaps I think for listeners, we need to say what we mean a bit more. Okay. Because not everyone will have watched the uh, talk. Uh, So... um, uh, let me try and, and briefly say what I think you mean. So we have these uh, slow, slower brain rhythms and these faster brain rhythms. Theta
0: is between five and fifteen. Okay. Is that right, roughly? Most people would. Well, we don't really know exactly how to define these things. Okay. So, but that's not so bad. Let's yes. let's take that.
2: And and then the gamma range is roughly three times that, four times that.
0: Well, maybe from
2: enough. 30 to 100, let's say. Yeah, okay. So, really quite broad bands. And the proposal is that, uh, that these are fundamentals to processing in different areas of the brain and that they combine together so that uh, the, the theta, that the perhaps gamma is maybe, when you, when you say that we're thinking in discrete ways, we're thinking in the gamma cycle peaks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that the slower theta waves is modulating what can
0: happen in the the gamma gamma spikes. Is thats that... Is that well, I'm saying, uh, I think the fundamental idea is that some item, whatever you want to call it, it could be in the hippocampus, a place is represented by the set of cells that fire in a gamma cycle. That's... So we have a window there of, let's say, five milliseconds. Right. And now we come... And we can call that the first gamma cycle within a theta cycle, and that general concept is called nesting. that is, within a theta cycle, you have room for you know maybe six or seven gamma cycles, the faster rhythm. Uh, the faster oscillations are nested within a cycle of the slower oscillation. so now that I've said that one place would be represented by a spatial code in the first gamma cycle, we can say, well, is there evidence that different information is represented during the second gamma cycle? And the answer is, I think now, completely clear that the answer is yes. And so what you wind up having, you know, is some sort of data formatting system such that within one theta cycle, which lasts, you know, in the order of 150 milliseconds, you get to send a multi-part message. There's seven, roughly seven parts to this message. And, right. uh,
1: and possibly more, actually.
0: And conceivably more and conceivably less. So, I mean, we don't know the exact frequencies and how they might vary.
2: So you're proposing that the oscillations is providing a, a computational A role, for instance, of of chunking or packaging up information. Maybe in in distant parts of the brain, you can form things in a package by where they where they fall. If they fall within the same theta cycle, they're in some sense part of the same package.
0: Well, if they fall in the same gamma cycle, they're part of the same package. I would say. And then, but then there's a uh, there's there's a a hierarchy here. Right. Sort of the theta forming Right. And so so then you can form a much bigger message, like all that would be contained within one theta cycle. So what's a specific example of this? This would be an example of the whole information of a, a transverse path. So a transverse path would involve multiple locations between where you are and the goal. And now we have clear examples of a whole path being played out within a theta cycle Right. But it's not a continuous process. It's discretized by gamma. So, so, but, but
1: that's the more recent work on hippocampus. Yeah. Right? So, and I think your original inspiration was, was not really linked to hippocampus. Your original inspiration was much more linked to ideas about working memory, about if you want the sequencing of memory, that memory has a certain capacity. No, uh,
0: working. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. It, I mean, the, the original work was quite confusing to people, and that was fair because the data that inspired this was data about theta and gamma observed in the field potential of the hippocampus. And then all of a sudden I started applying this to principles of working memory. Most people would not think of working memory as a hippocampal function. So there was kind of a sleight of hand in that original work and, you know, Maybe it was lucky that that it turned out not to be wrong.
1: But what was really the first empirical breakthrough that you, that you think you found to support that idea?
0: Well, I think the first s- strong suggestion that different information was probably encoded in different gamma cycles was the, the John O'Keefe's discovery in the hippocampus of the theta phase code so you say well what's you know what, why am I so excited about this recent work if O'Keefe had already shown that information that the phase of firing of hippocampal cells within the theta cycle was so important well what he didn't show was that the phase was discretized and so that's what this recent Foster paper shows so beautifully. So now we know that you can't just have any old phase within theta; you can only have certain discrete phases within theta. Um, so that, in a sense, really proves that you have to have something. And and the, the Foster proved that the discreteness arises from gamma. Mm-hmm. So that really settles the issue. You have. You know, on the order of six or seven discrete chunks of information thrown at
1: you. Yeah, so in the the Foster case, they were back in hippocampus. Yeah. And and you you jumped forward then 20 years again because this actually was published this year. Right. Right. And what you show there, so I have a rat, or or the rat navigates through an environment, and what they've managed to do is really very precisely align the place cell response. While I'm moving through this environment with the tat and the gamma cycle.
0: Well, they weren't moving through the environment, but um, this was the readout while the animal was was still. But yeah, so I mean, in a sense, this very precise work was made possible by the fact that they had so many cells that they were able to decode position on a very fine time scale. Mm -hmm. And it's only because they could. Decode position on the very time mm-hmm. fine timescale that they could find out that actually the animal is thinking about position X and and stuck in position X and then 30 milliseconds later suddenly it's thinking about position X plus one. Mm-hmm. That's the amazing mm-hmm. result that it jumps, and so that that's what the that's what discrete means. Mm-hmm. So it's it, not a continuous mm-hmm. process, and so that's. Supporting this idea of a discrete phase code of a theta gamma code.
2: I mean, would you? Uh, so when 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 you when you say discrete codes as opposed to continuous codes, mm-hmm. that makes me think of a standard computer CPU, which obviously goes in clock cycles, which are deser- determined by an oscillator. Right. I mean, are you thinking uh, this is the brain's clock cycle?
0: <laughs> well, you know, let, let's talk about you know the, the concept of, of a word. In computer um, framework, right? Right. So, what is exactly a word in computer? Well, I mean, it's a certain number of bits, and the bits are ordered, right? And 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 well, automatically we have to say that, and they're ordered in time sometimes, right? Um, so. The, what are the analogies to the theta gamma code? Well, one huge non-analogy is is the information content. So this elementary unit in the brain, in the computer is just 0 or 1. Right. And then we but what is the you know what is the information content within one gamma cycle? Well, it's almost infinite.
2: Well, uh, I would say it's slightly different. If you think about a standard CPU, your clock cycle is how many instructions. You can do one instruction during a clock cycle, and then you can do millions of those within a second in a modern CPU. But the instruction set mm. also changes, so that a modern CPU has a much bigger instruction set. So rather than just, say, uh, adding one and one together, you can now do some fairly sophisticated and numerical mm. computations in an instruction so so that makes it faster so um and if there is any analogy at all to what's happening in the brain and I I just want to push you on this to see mm. if you think there is then the um the clock cycle in the CPU is really saying that uh, uh, the way we're going to work is that we're going to do instructions one after another sequentially mm. and uh, we're going to do them at this speed and and within that uh, each each time step, we can just do one instruction. You know, maybe apply one operator to something mm. that's in memory, and and in in the brain, presumably, what you would, if if you're going to agree with that analogy, which you might not want to, mm. you would want to say that in certain parts of the brain, at certain times, there appears to be something like a clock cycle, which is organising computation into these sort of discrete
0: steps. Okay. Well, you know, let me talk about computation for a minute and then you can tell me whether you see an analogy. So first of all let's look at what happens within a theta cycle. Well we have the first gamma cycle and we have an ordered set. So already this buys you an interesting analogy. You have an ordered set over 60 or 70 or 80 milliseconds. You have this gamma cycle, the second, the third, and fourth, and so you get order out of that one. without theta you wouldn't have order now let's look at what happens in a gamma cycle so first of all as i was saying before there's an enormous amount of information represented within a gamma cycle this is the brain's way of doing things is that i'm going to coordinate the firing of the million neurons in the dente gyrus during one gamma cycle and some percentage of them, let's say 1%, are going to be active, and that's going to represent the information that I'm representing in that gamma cycle. And so that's, you know, how, that's you know probably a million bits of information because you've got the spatial pattern, you know, so many different spatial patterns that you can form given a million cells. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Th- this is, you know, just the opposite of a digital computer, which maybe in one step is zero or one. Here we have such a high dimensional thing. So the next question is, you know, what kind of computation can you do within a gamma cycle? Is it just the cells of fire that represent X? No. Um, you know, in a paper that Paul and Cesar and I uh, published, we showed that actually it's not unreasonable within that gamma cycle to do what could be called pattern completion or could be called an attractor operation. Why is that? Because let's say that the network receives input about a pattern and that pattern is slightly corrupted and incomplete. So let's say... 10,000 cells should fire, but of the 10,000 cells that should fire, in fact, you know, only 5,000 are triggered. Well, it only takes two or three milliseconds for those cells through their connections with other cells in the network and specific synaptic weights that connect these axons selectively. To the cells that are part of that 10,000 pool and as a result two or three milliseconds later bang the cells that didn't fire will fire i mean the cells that are part of the pattern will fire even though they weren't fired by the external input so here's an example of pattern completion occurring within two or three milliseconds i.e within the 20 or 30 milliseconds that is allotted to each gamma cycle. So yes, you can do computation within a gamma cycle. So, okay, now we can step back from this and you can give me your opinion. You know, what is the... How would you compare this to the way a computer works?
2: <laughs> well, I th- I think the, the analogy might be with something like a graphical processor which can do lots of parallel operations for instance on an image <coughs> in one clock cycle so the the <coughs> uh, the only thing that I'm really trying to say is is does the brain have a clock cycle because oh. as you say some people will 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 argue definitely not and people will talk about if they want to use a, comu- a computer analogy they will talk about event-based codes mm. so it's a continuous time system and then you get spikes um, okay. This and, and we do all the processing on those spikes, and it's it, it it's actually you're losing information when you say let's let's have time steps.
0: Well, let me tell you one more piece of information and get your opinion. So there's been a big debate about the, the anti. There are a group of people who are sort of anti oscillations, and one of the things that they've pointed out, which is absolutely true. Is that the periods of oscillations are not clock like. The periods, if you if you look at, let's say, even during a theta cycle, and you look from one gamma cycle to the next and ask the question you know, how regular is the gamma period? And the answer is not very regular. And it's not only empirically true, but given current models about how gamma has generated this sort of ping model that's just a a negative feedback between the principal cells, inhibitory cells, then feeding back onto the principal cells. Those models also do not predict that this is going to be a regular oscillation. So if you use the word clock, you'd have to say, oh my God, this is a terrible clock because gamma period is highly fluctuating. So a downstream, one kind of operation that maybe in a computer you could do, but in the brain, according to the theta-gamma code, you can't do, is to say, given that I have seen a gamma, uh, the output of, of cells during one gamma cycle, I can predict that exactly 25 milliseconds later I'll get another big bang, Right? that is not true you cannot do that
1: but maybe there's also another aspect to this that that makes a, a computer metaphor maybe less helpful because in a computer it you know it largely operates also on, on a se- segregation of, of memory and, and and program or memory and processing right these are strongly separated and to keep the the content and the operation synchronized you have to clock the whole thing Well, but if you look at this hippocampal process, it's not so obvious that, let's say, the memory and the process are actually differentiated. And maybe the problem you will have much more if you are a hippocampus or a brain is to impose some sort of order on these continuous streams of events that you're bombarded with. So maybe more this event-based interpretation that also Tony mentioned earlier. So another way maybe to think about uh, the theta-gamma cycle is that first, you try to get to some sort of a temporal segmentation of these continuous input streams through theta, but you rely then very much on these local competitive processes that give rise to gamma, so the excitatory inhibitory interactions that are fairly local, to then fill in within those short segments that theta gives you what the most, let's say dominant features are in that local process. Because the other thing we shouldn't forget about, it's not that theta gamma as we now see it in the hippocampus, is all there is to it because actually gamma is something that is playing out in lots of local volumes in a completely desynchronized fashion because it is just the range of an interneuron, you could say, that dictates what the sizes of a population of excitatory cells that play a role in generating gamma. So if you go, let's say, a few millimeters further down, you have a very different kind of, let's say, gamma encoding taking place. It has nothing to do anymore with the with the first one, but still they're all being then, if you want, aligned in time through the through the slow cycle of tata. And then if you talk about the clock, maybe the the, the clock is much more at the level of, of the tata cycle than gamma. Gamma is much more asynchronous and local, but the real clock, if you want to talk about the clock, is then the system that dominates the tata cycle. So how regular is tata compared to gamma? Uh,
0: I'm not I'm not really sure, but my guess would be that theta is maybe even more irregular. In fact, you know we don't really even know how to distinguish theta in the cortex from alpha, and this is all very confusing right now. In other words, where do these names come from? And the answer is they they came originally from the EEG field. And they had zero intellectual basis. That is, it was just arbitrary. They said, okay, let's just define this range by one Greek letter and this range by another Greek letter. And so, you know, we've just all been very confused by you know whether to make a big deal out of the difference between 8 hertz in the hippocampus, 7 hertz in the hippocampus. And maybe that's the same kind of process as 10 hertz in cortex. I mean, who's to say...
1: But yeah, maybe but yeah. b- but we have a we have maybe a handle on that, right? Because you know that we, we, we know the origins of, of, of these oscillations, right? So gamma is seen to arise out of a local circuit where excitation okay. inhibition interacts, right? I think there's consensus on that. Whether it's cortex or hippocampus, Fair enough. This is seen okay. as a source yeah. of gamma. Okay, and that means then that rhythmicity and regularity will depend on the local properties of, of that circuit. Right. Theta in hippocampus is seen as arising from the septum. Okay. Right? it's really as a driver of a slow of this slow oscillatory response for the cortex it might be the thalamus that dictates, or it will be the thalamus that dictates the slow, the slow rhythm, right? So, so if you look at the sources of of theta and gamma,
0: well, as you said, I I think you were on the right track when you said, you know, maybe what's really important in terms of interactions between brain regions is the slow oscillation. And that does maybe have to be synchronized between areas that communicate. You know, maybe the gamma is not so important; it's all local.
2: But I think the the, the notion of a clock, uh, although in a computer it's going to be a metronome, it doesn't have to be because in order because the key word for me that uh, John said was discrete. So you have a cycle, and it may be varying in its timing, but as long as the different parts of the system that need to understand each other are on the same point in the cycle, then the order that you're imposing by saying, I'm only going to uh, treat things within a, a gamma cycle as, as being together and I'm gonna take these bunch of events that happen with the gamma cycle and treat them as one event in some way and process that. So th- that seems to me the strong claim you're making that the the, the brain buys some uh, some usefulness from this binding of everything together into discrete chunks and that this is maybe uh, makes more sense than just having all these continuous processes because if i'm if i'm a bit of the brain over here listening to this bit of the brain over here uh i'll have to listen continuously and integrate everything that's happening in order to get to get, get to know what's going on but you're saying i get a series of snapshots with the gamma cycle or maybe with the theta cycle and, and i can just pay attention to what's mm-hmm. in that snapshot
0: I, I, I let's, let's don't like use that it. metaphor either. <laughs> no, no I, I, I like it, but I want to. I want to. I want to propose that we use another word, okay, instead of snapshot movie. Right. And why do I like that? Because let's say in the experiments that we've been discussing today, in various forms, the Johnson Reddish experiment, where the animal, uh, in a sense, gets a view of what happened if it goes down one path uh, of the maze. So what do I mean by view? Well, what the data show is that each point along the path is represented, and that is a movie. That's not a snapshot.
1: It's a sequence of snapshots.
0: It's a sequence of snapshots, which is a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I mean, that's really impressive uh, in terms of decision-making because you're getting that movie you know, within less than 100 milliseconds. And that's very valuable information. And, and I was discussing, Paul, I was discussing before with Tony, one thing I really, really like uh, about now imagining how the basal ganglia evaluates this movie. Um, the movie can be rich. The movie can say, you know, I, I turned, last time I turned left and, uh, you know, first thing I came to was you know uh, some breadcrumbs and that was okay and then I went on and uh, and I smelled some cat urine and I thought for sure I was gonna get eaten but you know finally I got to um, you know to the reward site and the, there was some really yummy milk mm-hmm. okay I mean so you have costs and benefits about the left choice well all of that information is passed Within less than a hundred milliseconds to the basal ganglia, and um, and I think that you know current models of the basal ganglia would allow you to actually integrate to evaluate each of those steps within, let's say, one gamma cycle, get the value or the 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 costs and the benefits, and and wind up at the end with some sort of integrated number which told you. The sum of the costs and the benefits, mm-hmm. and that's that's wonderful. I mean, and we know that that's the way we want to run a railroad. is is not just to look at the at what's at the end of the path, mm-hmm. but to know that uh, you know what we're going to risk if if we take that path along
1: the way. was yeah, So the the point there is that another element i think that 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 you have not uh, emphasized yet even though you've been dealing with it what's maybe more important is that also uh, if you are a brain which we all are in some way you you have to progressively throw away more information and distill things down to what really matters and also the way you think about the gamma cycle it's it's also a progressive um, um, deletion of noise if you want because also what you're saying in the gamma cycle i just ca- i can generate what seven plus or minus responses within within a tata cycle but these are all the result of a local winner take all so what i'm going to report in in this tata cycle is the stuff that really stands out for me among possibly hundreds of possible responses so if i'm in this maze like we take the the, the Johnson and Reddish experiments, I'm in the, at, at the T crossing in the maze, I, I imagine I'm going to the left, so now I have a sweep through my hippocampal representation, right, in a gamma, in a, within this mm-hmm. a, a gamma cycle, I have 100 milliseconds, and now I, I sort of, what pops out are actually the most relevant spots I might visit there. It's not all possible spots. So it's also this incremental selection that might be an important role there, and not only how the information is processed further downstream
0: okay, well, now we get into a really complicated area of episodic memory, so I mean strictly speaking, you know what you would recall if if we really think in terms of episodic memory is one of the times that I went down that path that's what if you take the point of view that that the hippocampus is is really the episodic store, and that what Johnson and Reddish is seeing is a recall of one previous traversal, not the statistical properties of all previous traversals of that path, but one of them. Then we get into this whole area of you know, is this the way you want a railroad? Do you want to, you know, do you want to use your hippocampus to remember individual events and then if so which ones which exact ones do you recall or do you want your hippocampus to be statistical i take the point of view that you know the great thing about the hippocampus is that it recalls an individual at, at least it, it it hopes to recall an individual trial and that has pluses and minuses it says you know that time on july 4th when i went down this path and you know, I thought there was going to be a cat, but, you know, there was actually a buzzing going on, and there wasn't a cat, so this time if there's not a buzzing, uh, if there's a buzzing going I'll take the risk because maybe there's not a correlation. I mean, all that detail could be important in making your next choice,
1: yeah, but, isn't but
0: that's not statistical. <laughs> and, I mean, I love the the idea that people have shown that actually... You know, if you use your episodic memory, you will often make worse choices. Uh, so, do you know, my favorite example, and I, I've heard that these experiments are a little controversial. Um, they they actually they did the following: they they showed people two houses, and. They went through each house, and this was done probably on a computer, and they said, oh, here's the kitchen. It's a wonderful modernized kitchen, but here's the bath. It's not really ever been modernized. And here's the bedroom. You know, it's really large, but here's the living room. It has a great view. And the the costs and benefits of the two houses were very different. And in fact, they had arranged it so that they thought that most people would pick house one as the better house. Okay, now they had two groups. After showing them these two houses, one group was told, please do this arithmetic problem. And the other group was told, um, you know, think about this house. Then they asked them, which house is better? And, you know, one can argue about whether it's possible to decide objectively that one house is better, but anyway, the people who did not think about it were better now why is why would this be well there's actually a very interesting and i think useful explanation probably what happens when you're using your thinking is that you get stuck in 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 in, in silly examples you say you know that kitchen reminded me of my least favorite aunt and you know she (laughs) damn it you know i went to her house and she gave me this porridge that was just disgusting and you're spending all your time thinking about this on so you actually aren't thinking about all the other rooms right and so it turns out that your basal ganglia which is sort of more statistical actually winds up doing a good job because even you know your episodic memory isn't sampling very well anyway but I don't buy it. <laughs>
1: look, I look, I, I think, I think it, there's a problem here. Uh, I, I'm sorry to, to bring the bad news, but <laughs> <laughs> earlier you said, and you referred to a paper we published together, that, that memory is, is based on attractor dynamics, right. and by virtue of that, you, you can do pattern completion, for instance. Right. Right. But, but an attractor dynamic has, by necessity, statistical properties because it will pull input states towards some average state. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, to then declare that attractor state as a factual, accurate representation of a single sampling, I think would be a really long shot. How how are you going to defend your attractor from drifting? And that's one of the things we showed, right? We explained, we explained also in that paper that uh, the drift that people saw in, in the kind of, say, a three memory you change the environment so now we are actually visiting the houses but we're slowly changing them mm-hmm. that there is a drift in that memory and that drift is a, then also an expression of a statistical property that you are averaging over experience right so, so isn't the idea of an attractor dynamic based memory actually forcing you to also commit to a more statistical interpretation of episodic memory
0: well let me try to see if I can Argue the other way. Um, I mean, you know, why is the attractor relevant when you, you know, you think about the kitchen in that house you were shown, and it, it, it was because it was really very similar to your aunt's kitchen. So there's the attractor. So we've utilized the attractor, but if it was just generalized kitchen, Right? you're saying it's really a kitchen attractor, it's not my aunt's kitchen attractor, then it would bring up associations with all kitchens, which might be very positive on average. But in fact, what happened was that it was not generalizable. That kitchen just got you stuck in your aunt's kitchen.
2: I think we're possibly looking at a false dichotomy here because... You, what you want for your episodic memory is to do pattern completion so you want to uh, be able to fill out what's happening now based on things which have happened in the past which are relevant which may help you interpret that situation so you're in that kitchen you're reminded of your aunt's kitchen and that might also make you think that well maybe this kitchen has got some of the properties of that other kitchen i was in and that might be useful for understanding that scene um so the pattern completion is going to partly depend on many possible past events which are relevant to interpreting this one uh, and then the o- other thing you want to do is pattern separation so you want to and this is you want to be able to say but this isn't my aunt's kitchen so uh, although i remember it as being similar it's not the same thing so your episodic memory has to be able to distinguish this kitchen from previous ones mm. which is what you're you're saying is that we needed to do both these things and the, the fact that i think it can do both but it doesn't do either of them perfectly is the
0: thing we want to try and explain about episodic memory that sounds like a very nice compromise i'll go for, I'll go for that <laughs> good
1: at least john will not demolish his studio now that, that's great but So now, so so now we have an idea about this episodic memory in the hippocampus, and we want to use that as a way to understand coding in the brain, right? And what we see there is that this episodic memory that's playing out on 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 the slow oscillation of theta in the gamma cycle is um, is telling us, let's say, what what's the most relevant, what are the most relevant aspects of the processing going on within this piece of volume of the hippocampus. But now if you you go back to the the data of Foster that you talked about earlier, where they have, with, with very great temporal precision, unpacked the response in the gamma cycle, in some sense it showed again a further complexification because it's not that on every single gamma cycle there's just a single spike. You have multiple spikes riding within that gamma cycle. So, can you imagine that the nesting would go further than only theta, mm-hmm. gamma, but that also go, let's say, low and high gamma?
0: Well, first of all, you know, we don't really understand anything about the differentiations between low and high gamma, and there's a one really, you know, accepted place where where you see these simultaneously, or, or at least overlapping, and that's in the High gamma that comes into CA1 from the cortex, and the low gamma that comes into CA1 from CA3. And uh, it really it's just unclear to me what this all means. I don't think anybody knows. One surprising thing is you might say, let's look at the output and see who the output is listening to, and the answer is neither. The output just has its own gamma not tied to either of them. So I mean one very simple way of looking at it which I favor you know is that you know inputs are coming in and that and the cell is integrating them on its own time constant and deciding how to output the information on its own. Um, That's not tremendously satisfactory uh, but That seems to be the best Mm -hmm. description that I can come up with of what has actually been
1: found. But that seems reasonable, right? Because let's say I'm in CA3, I'm packing up information in my gamma cycle based on a local competitive process. Now, what I'm telling CA1 about, the, the next station upstream or downstream from me, it well, that would be the, the subiculum. The
0: downstream from CA1 is the subiculum. I no, was just talking I was about at CA3, CA1. right? I was at no, CA3. I was talking about CA1. Ah, okay. okay, right. So downstream of CA1. No, no but sa- I
1: want to start at CA3 because I want to say, okay. basically CA3 makes a pre-selection and says, okay, these are the few items that I care about. Uh, uh, so it has filtered out a lot of noise. Now, CA1 will do something similar because it now gets this whole barrage of inputs from CA3 still and has to make a selection. So again, it selects within its, within its own gamma cycle using the same competitive process to tell the subiculum what it really cares about. Yeah. So it's really also a hierarchy then of competitive processes. So this is how you think about it. I don't know. I, I, I think
0: this is just going to... I personally would think that, that you know, a lot of effort should now be put into understanding CA1 because it's just so fascinating and we, what's happening and we have so much data and something, some principle is going to emerge but mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I honestly have no idea what it is but I actually think I'd like to spend some time seeing if I can figure it out.
1: So then the, um, we early in the week we also had, had quite some uh, information presented to us by Edward Moser on the grid cells mm-hmm. and the grid cell story actually, for the last 10 years looked so clean and nice because here we had these cells in the entorhinal cortex input to the hippocampus, have a very nice grid-like response to space driven by, by velocity. And uh, this might then be a great substrate for place cells in the hippocampus to learn to learn about space. Right? Now that story has become more complicated because it looks like place cells can develop place fields in the hippocampus even if you have no grid cells available to you. So the, the place cells are way more promiscuous in that sense than initially anticipated. So that might give us some space to also speculate about what these grid cells really are for if they're not really the only source of spatial information. So it was up to you. How else would you abuse the grid cells?
0: Well, we very much favor uh, a new view of grid cells. And the question is, you know, what functions are there out there that you have to account for and which ones do you want to assign to grid cells? So classically, what people have said is, well, you have sensory information about the outside world, you know, here I am. People have said, path integration, I integrate velocity, so if I knew where I was, I integrate my velocity, I know where I am now. And, and then this interesting phenomenon, which we've talked about earlier, on the basis of Johnson and Reddish, which is I'm not moving, but I'm gonna my mind is gonna move down one of the paths, and we call that mind travel. So in the end, which fu- you know we have these three functions, how are we going to build a system that does all three? That's what we've got to do. And uh, by my way of thinking, the grid cells are really well suited for doing this mind travel. So they move you in an imaginary way through space. Uh, they can integrate. But what they integrate is not your actual velocity, but some artificial velocity, which you, which part of the brain generates, saying, I'm curious about what happens if I move down in this direction with this velocity. And then the grid cell system can give you the answer. Uh, it, it's a coordinate system that says, well, given this velocity in this direction, this is where you will be, and and it gives you that path. The beauty then is that it can force that movement through space on the hippocampus. Why? What can the hippocampus contribute to that? It contribute can contribute associations of, that happened with those places. So, if there was reward or a cat associated with some place that you mind travel to that's incredibly valuable information so i don't think that the that the grid cells know about cats or food but they do know about the coordinate systems of space so you move through space and you tell the hippocampus here's how we're moving through space and then the hippocampus says given that i've you've made me move through space, this is what I found associated with, with that. So, then we would say, well, great, if, if, if that's what grid cells are good for, don't we also have to do path integration? Well, we, there, we can make some suggestions that it might occur earlier in the structure, and there's some interesting candidates about where path integration might occur, so that's the integration of real velocity.
2: So um, I have a, a bit of a worry about this story because you know, uh, Edward Moser presented this beautiful data set, and his interpretation, or my interpretation of his interpretation, mm-hmm. is that we have these modules at different uh, levels of granularity, which are giving us this wonderful metric map of space, so that when you come into this room, that metric is laid out over the space so that every point in space now has a unique code assigned to it in, across these different modules of grid cells. Uh, and it's anchored possibly at the door or some other point. Yeah, all the grid cells always seem to have an anchor at the place that that is introduced. Or Now, now I've got this metric map of space. Um, I, can, I can navigate in it. But your suggestion seems to be that uh, you're going to take my map of space and you're now going to start moving it around. So I'm no longer on firm ground knowing where my, what my coordinate frame is because my coordinate frame is shifting. Uh, you're moving it around. Or have I misinterpreted what you're saying?
0: Maybe misinterpreted because when you described uh, Edward Moser's proposal, I found myself nodding. Not nodding to sleep, but nodding in <laughs> agreement. Uh, and so, okay. um, so the answer is, I think that, uh, that that I would agree with everything you said. It's a coordinate system which allows navigation. The question is, um, you know, what do you use that coordinate system for? And and, and it's pre. The nice thing about it, it's it's a pre-wired coordinate system, so you can use it in any environment. You just have to attach it. Yeah. To a given environment, and now you have the means for saying, "Well, if I want, look this way, you know, where will I wind up? Or if I go this way, where will I wind up?" Which is what I'm saying.
1: Right. So
0: I don't think we're. I don't think we're at odds. Uh, the only. Um, no, I, I guess. Well, I, don't so, see them, so, I don't see them as yeah. as contradictory. Okay, I
2: guess you're you're putting the ability to move within the map okay. in the grid cells, which are themselves the right. coordinate frame map. And I, I worry a little bit right. whether you can do that, whether right. the, the grid cells just have to form the coordinate frame and then some other system can represent movement within it.
0: Okay. So I think you did say one thing that really I, I'm forced to to come back to and admit that's a problem and, and, and suggest a solution. And that is, if we use the grid cell system for... Um, you know, for these imaginary movements, then how do you reset it at the end of a theta cycle so you're back to current position? Um, because we've sort of mucked with this, yeah, right. And you know, my proposal is that that we do have another integrator, which is integrating true velocity, and which is, in a sense, doing what everybody thought. The grid cell system would do. So, you know, you could say, well, I've made life more complicated now because now I have a whole other system which is keeping track of actual position, another grid-like system that's keeping track of actual position. And that can, since it knows where I am, can reset the grid cell system to current position after I muck with it and do make it do this imaginary movement. You were absolutely right. You have to, after you do the imaginary movement, you have to move back to current position. So somebody must know current position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, it's not, I mean, this complexity is demanded by the fact that we see these imagined movements through space. So somebody's got to be doing this. So if you take Another model, they also have to solve these dual requirements.
1: Yes. No, but I think both of you are, are much too pessimistic about this because <laughs> the, on the one hand, um, wh- why would I even need a parallel system for that? Because I, I just need to replace my velocity vector, right? And, um, either the velocity vector comes from my, my uh, vestibular system or optic flow, whatever and it tells about physical movement in space. And with that, I'm driving my grid cell security response. This signal is arriving in the entorhinal cortex over the thalamus. So I have a number of stages in this pathway where I can basically hijack the signal. I can pump in anything else I want. I drive my grid cells around again. Now you have to, pr- and the point is so far, the data, at least on rats has shown that if, if they might travel, like in the sweeps, we've seen Johnson and Reddish uh, or Pfeiffer and Foster, um, the animal's standing still, the animal's not moving. Right? I'm, I'm not aware of any data where the animal is actually doing this kind of mind travel as it is moving. So that, that means as I now start to move, I take over this whole channel again to, to pipe a velocity signal well, into let, my brain. Let me cells. stop you,
0: Paul, because I'm afraid I have to tell you that okay. the phase procession the interpretation of the phase procession that I think everybody would accept at this point is that while the animal is moving, mm-hmm. it is looking ahead. Mm-hmm. It is.
1: But not in this extreme way, as, as is shown in, let's say, the the Johnson and Radish sweeps or the Pfeiffer the and Foster paper.
0: But it right. nevertheless is. And I mean, the interesting thing is now when we come to experiments, right? So why do I think I'm on the right track? Because this looking ahead that occurs while the animal is moving, which is reflected in, the pho- in this phenomenon called phase precession, that does disappear when you get rid of the grid cells or when you get rid of the medial entorhinal cortex. Mm-hmm. So there is some experimental basis for this, but the place cells survive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're beginning to get experimental support for this dissociation. And in fact, it's this sort of dissociation that sort of was the demise of the previous theories mm-hmm. that... So, I mean, we're, we're starting to get a lot of data, which, which now begins to differentiate between different models. And, I, you know, this model that we're putting together now, I think, is at least consistent with all the existing data. It may fall apart when new data comes, mm-hmm. but this is where right. we're at.
2: So, I mean, I think I'm, I'm more happy with your model if I'm understanding it correctly, which we have this metric map which is anchored to the room. And all you're saying is that the grid cell, activity in the grid cell can represent the fact that I'm Moving around in an imaginary way in the room, and that different patterns of grid cells are firing to represent those different points i 'm visiting, that will then feed through to c a three three c a one to represent the the uh, non spatial features of those locations in space, what it would look like if I was standing there exactly. and looking around mm-hmm. and yeah i 'm fine with that because the my metric map is anchored mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, when I when I open my eyes and look, then yeah, I'll be my my grid cell map. I'll be back at the point in my grid cell map where I really should be. So I'm not sure there is a problem that you're describing. Uh, I I thought you were co-opting the grid cells to do something other than have a stable metric no. map of
0: space. No, I was not.
1: Yeah. It's only the velocity factor that's changing, actually.
0: Right, and and you know, McNaughton has tried to generate models in which. All you do is you have one sort of grid cell system which is responding both to real velocity and to artificial velocity. So the idea is that I know where I am because I've integrated real velocity, but now I'm going to add an additional velocity and move imaginary through space. But, and now what he does is has a speculation about how you can subtract out that artificial velocity, in a sense, make it a negative, and and so that puts you back to where you are. So here you could deal with two kinds of velocity in the same network. And my only difficulty with that is that it's computationally difficult to have two velocity terms and then subtract out the effect of only one of them. It's not impossible, but it's not elegant. And, and therefore, I favor the view that you just keep it elegant and have one guy who's dealing with true velocity and another guy who's dealing with the artificial velocity, but who can be reset after all is said and done by the guy who's keeping track of real velocity. It seems more elegant to me.
1: But now, so, but also what, what you would be saying is that in my look ahead with this mind travel, I only have, I have a finite capacity to look ahead, right? I can only do that for how many tetracycles? just it's one full tetracycle but with, with the, the seven odd Great. gamma responses I have within that. Yes. So if, I, if you want to now look ahead, let's say if you are in an environment that you know very well, like Woods Hall, <laughs> you might be able to look ahead basically to any kind of street, any possible trajectory with much higher precision and much further depth in space than you can do in a novel city, like here, Barcelona. So how then can I change the spatial scale and my resolution on which I can look ahead um, if everything has to happen within a single tether cycle?
0: Well, we strongly suspect, based, based on some evidence, that the whole system is just replicated uh, along the long axis of the hippocampus with, at larger and larger scales. So the dorsal part of the hippocampus, which is the one that's almost st- exclusively studied these days, keeps track of very small distances. I mean, we're talking about distances you know, of a foot or so. Um, in contrast, uh, the ventral hippocampus, when you look at the size of the place fields, when you look at the phase precession, you know, is looking over meters. I'm changing units here, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I'm in Europe. No, yeah, uh, don't worry about uh, it. Confusion is expected. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and, you know, we were talking with David Redish the other day about, you know, well, why do we know so little about the ventral hippocampus? It's because it's so hard to study, hmm. it's hard to get an electrode in there. Um, And, you know, it's so easy to generate lots and lots of data because you can get, in the dorsal hippocampus, you not only get an electrode in there easily, but you get a zillion electrodes in there easily. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you get really rich data sets, and it just isn't true. But, you know, at this point, you know, some some data is available about the ventral hippocampus, and then I think we'll have, Mm -hmm. you know, more answers to your question at that point. But the available data does show that the scale right. changes.
1: So then, the, do you see this as a unique feature of hippocampus and entorhinal cortex, this ability for mind travel? It's unique, to, or, or can cortex also mind travel?
0: Hmm, That's a very interesting question. Maybe this is a good point to end. I have no idea about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not going to end here, John. Uh, so, um,
1: so, so, so. so Okay, let's let let's see let's see what the future brings us. But now, so this is amazing. Right? This is a, a great moment. You're gonna all buy us beers later on. Twenty years of Teta gamma coding, right? And we still could not talk it out of your head, even not in this, this podcast interview. <laughs> so I think you're still going strong on that. Thank so you. So now, having having you know fought this battle now for so long, and, and still standing and smiling, what is John's law that we should adhere to to study and understand the brain?
0: study the rest of the brain,
1: everything. What's John's law? What what assures progress in understanding the brain? Wow, that's, we're gonna write that's it great. on the wall here. John's right law. John's law.
0: Right. You just okay. have to define it. Yeah, that it's not as complicated as you think. <laughs> that is to say, <laughs> that uh, you know, if we think it through carefully, you know, we'll see we'll see organization principles fall in. So I'm definitely that that people have underestimated how quickly uh, we will come to understand the brain and I think that understanding the brain is a lot like solving uh, you know other kinds of puzzles and when you look at the process let's say of a jigsaw puzzle you know at first you don't see the patterns you know you don't know how to to recognize certain you know uniformities of colors and patterns and you also don't have many constraints but everything changes you know when you get near the end you understand the rules you have constraints from other um you know pieces of the puzzle and everything just goes very fast as you get near the end and i think we you know we are getting to that point Mm -hmm.
1: okay so don't get confused by complexification (laughs) (laughs) right so now the other thing is john um as you know tony likes traveling and he likes uh, hamburgers and Captain <laughs> Kidd. Uh-huh. So five years from now, he, he wants you to take him to Captain Kidd in Woods Hole. And then he will confront you with a with prediction you're going to make today that you will have proven right or wrong by then. So what's the most important prediction you would like to commit yourself to Ooh. that needs to be verified by that time?
0: Oh, well, that's easy. Because, you know, even older than the... Theta gamma idea is the molecular basis of memory, CAM kinase. That now we have refined that model to say that it's the complex of CAMK2 with the NMDA channel at the synapse that is the actual molecular memory. And in my own lab, we've done the critical test to see whether we could erase LTP by attacking the CAMK2 NMDA complex and we could so that was great and so now we have set up upon our the next phase of our work which is to erase a behavioral memory so we have everything set up we have a nice learning task of spatial memory Uh, we have a virus which contains a dominant negative form of camk 2 and so what we're doing is to put the virus into CA1 and see if we can make the animal forget. And uh, we've even arranged this to be a spectacular form of virus, which does just what we want. It turns out to be an HSV virus. What's so spectacular about it is that it only expresses for two days. And so what we can do is teach the animal something, inject the virus, let it do its thing, but then it's gone. Now, if the memory is gone, when we measure 10 days later, all those negative, nasty reviewers, they can't say, (laughs) well, the virus is just mucking things up because then we can say, no, the virus is gone. We really, and the only reason that, you know, the memory is not there anymore is because we've erased it. Mm -hmm. That's what we want to say. We want to say we were able to erase it. Cool. And so we think we have the, uh, so if, if, this, if this works out, then Tony owes me a lot of beers. <laughs> Great. John Lisbon,
1: thank you for this conversation. Okay.
0: Thank you. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometrics and Biohybrid Systems project funded by the European Seventh Research
1: Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening. That's great, On the anniversary of yes. your paper. Yeah. Be so let's see. How old do I have to get?
0: If it's (laughs) before I prove the knk two hypothesis, if it has to be in years of five, exactly, I'm not going to live that long.
1: (laughs) But that sounds like a fantastic experiment. Thank you for generating a a prediction on a topic that we hadn't discussed at all. (laughs) Well, that was that was very helpful, John. It was fun. Yeah, (laughs) it was very
2: good.